As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello, I'm Dan Bardell. Welcome to The England Show from The Athletic. I'm joined today by Flo Lord Hughes, David Priest and The Athletic's England correspondent, Jack Pittsbrook. They're going to answer questions from The Athletic subscribers on all things England at Euro 2020. First, if you missed yesterday's special England v Scotland Euro 96 Rewind podcast, it's available on the feed right now. Honestly, it was so much fun to be involved in a real privilege to talk over that great time and chat through the tournament with Mark, George Colkin and Ollie Kay. There's some great interviews in there as well with key members of that England Euro 96 team. So here's a short burst to give you an impression of what it was all about. To the Gaza goal then, an iconic goal with an iconic celebration. Here's the man himself talking us through it. Well, after the save, Dave saved it. After the save, I'm thinking, oh, brilliant. We've got a chance here. And then when I went to Teddy, and then he's given it to Dan Anderson. And I've seen, this, I've seen the gap, and I just thought, go for it. You know, t- take a runner with it. But for Darren to play that ball was perfect. It was a great pass. So obviously, I've got into the box, and I went past the other, other centre-half, the Celtic centre-half. I went past him. And then I just had a quick glimpse and I seen Colin coming and I thought I've got him. I flicked, obviously did the flick over him and I just thought, just connect perfect with it. I didn't really have that much time to think and I just, I hit it, you know, and uh, the feeling was phenomenal. Oh, here's Gascoigne. Gascoigne, he can finish it here! Up and I just said, Look, guys, whoever scores, do, do the dentist chair, please. You know, that goal, the celebration, that's one thing no one could ever take from me. And I, I'm quite proud of that, you know. It was just that perfect moment, wasn't it? I mean, the goal itself was extraordinary. The flick itself is, you know, is uh, is a work of art. The celebration was a work, work of art in itself, too. And it's just a perfect, perfect moment. 
And don't forget at the moment you can subscribe to The Athletic for just £1 a month and read unrivaled Euro 2020 content from our team of writers. All you got to do is go to theathletic.com slash englandpod to sign up right now. You're listening to The England Show, part of The Athletic Podcast Network. Hello to my panel. Flo, I'll come to you first as the youngest here with us today. I think you just said you were three when Euro 96 was on, so not many memories I'm imagining, but have you, have you gone through and caught up over the years? Yeah, yeah, no, I definitely have. I'm actually wearing um, a t-shirt with Gaza on today. Um, there we go. You can maybe kind of quite see it if I position myself. But yeah, I was, um, I would have been two and a half, so um, not not a lot of memories I can talk about, but I'm sure, you know, I had a great time. Jack, what about you? Yeah, I'm very much of that kind of um, millennial generation for whom Euro 96 was a huge moment. You know, it was the first tournament I really remember. Like, I vaguely remember USA 1994, but I was a bit too young. And of course, when England weren't in it, it didn't have quite the same hook. Uh, so I watched all the games of Euro 96. I was massively into it. I remember where I watched every single one. Uh, and even though the sort of football nostalgia industry has squeezed every last drop out of Euro 96 in the last 25 years, especially in the last month or so, uh, I still feel like it retained some of its original thrill when I watched the flips back. Yeah, and it was a bit, a bit of a Wem- a bit of a Euro '96 vibe. Sorry, at Wembley on at the weekend, wasn't it, Jack? A little bit, yeah. You know, they played footballs coming home as always, like they always do at England games, and it you know clearly retains a lot of its collective power, even to fans who were clearly born in you know long after the song either edition of the song came out. Uh, so yeah, it was it was very easy to get kind of nostalgic and, uh, and to feel as if you were part of that same kind of historical moment. And David, I could be about to massively offend you here. What, what, were, you, what were you doing in Euro 96? Were you involved in football at any way at that point? I was. I was at Sunderland at the time. I was about 19, 19, 19 20. But um, the biggest thing I remember from uh, from that time, I, I actually went to Malia on holiday. And um, like I said, I was playing at Sunderland at the time and, and two Sunderland fans were on the same flight and they just sold their refrigeration business for three million. And uh, and they just literally came with a bag of uh, big case of money, and then everybody who was in they were actually in the same hotel as us. Everyone round the pool never paid for a drink all week. It was absolutely brilliant. That sounds that sounds like a great way to spend what was a, a great <laughs> where, tournament. Where are anywhere. they now, David? Can you tell us where the fridge men are now? What are they up to? Well, do you know, I did stay in contact for a little bit. You know, we were talking. Um, prior to coming on here about the, the beer festival after we came back we met them at the, at the beer festival for uh, for a, a second round and um, yeah I'm glad it was free because I felt like I needed I would have had to buy their drinks as well in return <laughs> like you know to return the beer but yeah no I actually don't know where they are now drank themselves to death probably <laughs> Well, if, if, the, if you're listening fridge men do let us know what, what you're up to whether you've made a success of, of your lives Jack it's a, it's a viewer's question or a reader's question special today. It's always good to hear from the Athletic subscribers, isn't it? Yeah, always. It's fantastic. We've got so many ways to interact with them. We've obviously seen you know, lots of people around the country and Athletic subscribers are really into the Euros at the moment. They're, um, everyone's watching the games and it's just it's really good as a journalist to get a sense of what, what the fans and the public are thinking about the team at the moment. 
yeah, good to create a little online community and an online hub. So we'll go straight on to the first question. It comes from George P. George says, we can all agree that Kane had a fairly quiet game on Sunday. Was this just a bad day at the office for him or possibly a result of the system that was being played? Jack, we'll, we'll, start, we'll start with you as the England man, someone who was at the game. You could probably have the best vantage point to, to tell us what Kane came across like. It's a really good question. I did think that Kane didn't look quite himself, uh, particularly in the first half. I just thought he wasn't... I'm used to, you know, I've been watching Tottenham for the last few years and Kane is so involved now in how Tottenham play. He always drops deep, he gets in the ball, he plays passes out wide, he takes over from the midfielders. And there wasn't really that much of that yes, sorry, on Sunday for England. And so I did think he's not really that involved. And, you know, even when England were attacking, it was usually more to do with Foden and Mount and Sterling. Who were, who were involved in those moves trying to get into the box. Um, I do think Kane did improve a bit in the second half. He had one moment where I thought he looked like Tottenham Kane, where he dropped about 30, 35 yards away from the Croatian goal, got on the ball and played a clever reverse pass through to Sterling, which just got caught, up, caught out by the defender. And so that, that was like the kind of Kane that we're used to seeing for Tottenham. But overall, I thought you know he worked hard physically in very difficult conditions and he occupied the centre-backs and he was good in the air. But we didn't quite see him in those attacking positions, except for that one chance in the second half of the far post where he ended up colliding. He put it over and ended up colliding with the post and hurting himself. But, you know, first game of the tournament, I certainly wouldn't drop him or criticise him or anything like that. I just think there's uh, more to come from Harry Kane, I think, later on in this Euros. Yeah, Flo, I think on previous podcasts, we, we've spoken about how Harry Kane's games developed, obviously the dropping deep and whether that's actually what we want from him. For England, do you think this is something to worry about? No, I don't think it's anything to get too worried about. I think it's just the the fact that lots of these players are coming from playing in different formations and in different structures, and they all have to adapt to playing the way that Southgate wants to play. And I think Kane is sort of working out how to flip between the two because he's comfortable and played well, like Jack said, dropping deep and playing passes out wide and bringing teammates in. But now he he needs to adjust himself slightly to get in better positions and perhaps get himself in the in the box a little bit more and be a bit more advanced when he has spent the last couple of years not doing that. So I think it's it's just typical of lots of players having to come together, haven't had a lot of time together, haven't had a ton of games to play together. There's new players who are in the starting eleven for the first time, and then there's a couple who've been playing in England together for a while. So I think it's just adjustment. I just I agree with Jack. I think it's just patience. Um, you know, there's been a big build up to this competition, not just um on England, but on Kane especially. A lot of a lot of pressure on him, and that's rightly so because he's one of the best forwards in the world. But there is so much expectation, and I think when when he hit the post with his sort of chest shoulder I think you know, it was a real heart and mouth moment and that just speaks volumes of how much expectation there is on him to sort of carry England through this competition and perhaps it's great actually that he had a quiet day because it makes you realize you know it's not the end of the world if Kane isn't smashing them in every match because England have other options and that, that's actually a positive really. Yeah another positive I think David is that He'll be hungry now because he started the World Cup on fire, got a couple of goals in in the first game and and looks the favourite for the golden boot from day one. But after the first round of matches so far, he's got some catching up to do. Yeah, he has. And and we know how how motivated he is to to score goals and be that top goal scorer. But also, I think it's about... um, It was 
it was less about Harry Kane. I'm not saying that he was sort of sacrificed by design, but the fact when they play 4-3-3, and especially the way they did against Croatia, it was more about Foden and Sterling. Now, it was always going to be a tight game. You, know, you end up having the chance that Foden hits the post, obviously the goal from Sterling. Those were the two main attacking threats. And I think more when they play 4-3-3, Kane's going to be the one that's sort of like the, the one a little bit deeper. And the two more more advanced when they you know when we're sort of countering on teams, maybe that'll change when we go if we go th- uh, three four three and he's more the spearhead and the two are sort of two uh, wide men are sort of tucked inside playing the half spaces. So I think it's to me, for me it wasn't it wasn't a bad game by him. Like I said, it was just a, the way that it was um, that England was set up that it was it was always going to be that way really. Jack, over the years, obviously you're someone that watches Spurs every week and you watch all the England games live as, as well. Are there any major differences between the Kane that plays for England and the Kane that plays for Spurs? I think England actually pioneered the kind of the idea of Kane playing in a deeper role where he can do a bit more creating before England did. So that sorry, before Tottenham did. So that famous three-two uh, win in Seville in October 2018, Kane was. In, Absolutely brilliant for England, playing deeper roles, playing those passes with Sterling and Rashford running beyond him. And it was, and you know, back then that was still when Pochettino was manager of Tottenham, and Pochettino didn't really want Kane doing that. Pochettino wanted Kane as the kind of fixed number nine for the team. But over time, Kane has obviously been allowed to play by Jose Mourinho much deeper for Tottenham. He's completely changed his role for Spurs since Mourinho came in in, in November 2019. And at the same time, England have found that they've had slightly more kind of creative players who can do that number 10 type role. Mason Mount being the obvious one as well, but Phil Foden's been playing more and more for England and at times Jack Grealish. So I think that that means that while at Tottenham there's a big need for Kane to play as more of a sort of nine and a half, I think that for England, maybe he doesn't need to do that so much and maybe it actually makes more sense for him to play as more of that, that fixed number nine. So that's, this is going to be one of the big interesting tactical points for England in this tournament, is will Kane play the kind of traditional number nine role that he played for Pochettino Spurs, or the kind of nine and a half role that he played for Mourinho Spurs? He's always hungry for goals, and he'll certainly be hungry to bag a few against Scotland on Friday night, so that can only be a good thing for England. Another good thing for England, and Joe G wants to talk about him, was Calvin Phillips's performance. Joe G wants to know, do you think Calvin Phillips will continue in midfield for the Scotland game and for the rest of the tournament, especially in the role he played on Sunday? David, I'll come to you first this time. Very, very impressive, wasn't it? Yeah, he was brilliant. And I think in the in the, his previous performances for for England, it's it, it it came away a little bit more from from what he'd been doing at Leeds, where I think we you know there was a piece on the Athletic today where you know talking about how how England played more, more like Leeds than Leeds did in, in certain sections of the game, and and I think that's helped him as well. But I mean, he also showed. I think a lot of people just think he, he plays that one role. Um, on his own for Leeds, where he's sort of covering a lot of ground and uh, he's, a, he's a bit of a link. But actually, he's a very good footballer as well, and he showed his passing ranges uh, in the game. And um, and and that's I feel that's what we got. Uh, oh, that's what we were shown more than the, in his past previous uh, appearances for England. That he's more he's more he is a better footballer than maybe what a lot of people have given credit for. Yeah, undoubtedly had an excellent season for Leeds. Flo, I've always felt he was a little bit safe in an England shirt in the, in the games I'd seen leading up into the tournament. Well, I certainly didn't think that on Sunday, and I'm presuming you thought the same. Yeah, and I have to be honest, like David said, I've always been one of those people who... 
I wouldn't say I didn't rate Phillips, but when he got his first call-up into England, I was surprised Um, because he got that first call-up, I think, when he was still playing for Leeds in the Championship. And I cover a lot of EFL football, so it wasn't kind of out of Premier League snobbery, but it was more just because I thought he was a good footballer, but exactly like David said, I thought he was just a player that kind of ran around the pitch and chased people and harassed people to win the ball back, which is a brilliant player, but that was kind of his sole function. So I think what we saw on Sunday was much more of this creativity and playmaker that I hadn't really necessarily seen. And I obviously don't watch Leeds every weekend, but I have watched them you know, from time to time over the last couple of years, especially in the championship and, and obviously since they got promoted. But yeah, massively impressed. And I definitely think he will play a big part in this tournament. And after that performance on Sunday, you've got to say... Southgate has to keep him in the team to play in your first major tournament in that opening game at Wembley in the heat I mean it was so hot just watching it and Wembley obviously all the heat will come in in that bowl and it must have been you know it must have felt like 35 degrees let alone I think it was like 28 or something kind of elsewhere so to do what he did is just so impressive so yeah he definitely continues to start for me. Jack how good was he in the flesh at Wembley on Sunday? Oh, he was amazing. He was amazing. Like, like a lot of people, I think I probably got Calvin Phillips a bit wrong. I thought he was a sort of, you know, like the others have said, a sort of busy uh, Pierre-Emile Hoiberg type player who would just break up the opposition attacks. And to be fair, you know, as you said, that is the role he's been playing for England in his first few games. But he was absolutely phenomenal on Sunday. You know, he ran the game. He's so energetic. He was getting forward. Uh, Michael Cox, our colleague, did a great piece about the importance of of Phillips uh, breaking forward in behind. And obviously that's how Sterling scored his goal, was from a brilliant Phillips run forward, skipped past two opponents, played played that clever little pass through to Sterling, who scored. Uh, before the game, I think lots of people would have, I think lots of people would have wanted Bellingham in the team. But obviously Bellingham's a great player. I think some there was some expectation they might try and bring back Jordan Henderson. And I think some people felt as if Phillips was basically just holding that position until Henderson came back. Now, I'm a huge admirer of Henderson, but Henderson, who hasn't played a proper game for four months, couldn't do what Phillips did on Sunday. And uh, I don't, you know, if Phillips keeps on playing like that, Henderson is not going to get back in the team. Like, he was absolutely astonishing. It's no surprise there was so much praise for him afterwards from pundits on social media and from people all over the world because he was just phenomenal. Yeah. Jack mentions that uh, Michael Cox piece on Calvin Phillips there. If you do want to read that piece and you're not already subscribed to The Athletic, you can do it right now for £1 a month for six months and you'll get all the Euro 2020 content from the team of writers. All you got to do is go to theathletic.com slash England pot. David, just back to, back to Phillips again. What impressed me most about him was that I thought he was him and Rice were going to be the two protecting the back four giving England a platform, really, but it was his disruption higher at the park that impressed me. Yeah, and I think what you see over the past few years, especially, and not that he was playing in a number 10 position, but you see a lot of teams putting a number 10 in place or one of those higher rates is somebody who's got a great physical capacity, you know, rather than rather than being the, the sort of the, the, the one pivot and trying to cover as much space as possible. And you even see it with... Uh, in Golo Kante, you know, he, you know, people expect him just to play that Makaleli role and, and be, be called around, but he's much more efficient when he's doing a high up the pitch, and he's in that number eight position. And I think it's it's a great tactic there that, that they're using. And Southgate, you know, I liked a few things that he did, you know, things like that, things that people weren't expecting. 
even the you know the Trippier selection, it was it maybe didn't come off, but I like his idea, his thinking behind it as well. So it, it's it, of course you don't want people. You really shouldn't be experimenting when it comes to these times, so you wouldn't like to think that people are experimenting. But trying things like that with the the knowledge that he's got, you know, these are small risks, risks that are being come off for him. Flo, Chris B wants to know about systems. He wants to know, when do you think England will, if at all at any point, try a 3-4-3? It's interesting. I think so much of the build-up into this tournament was this assumption that Southgate was going to play three at the back even if he didn't do it during the friendlies like as soon as Maguire is fit the assumption is it's going to go back to a back three but it's not as common as it once was as a formation so I think it's so it's so much of it is depending on Maguire's fitness and who we're going to be facing in the latter stage as well because I think it's slowly becoming clear that Maguire's probably not going to play in any of these group stages. We know that England are likely going to face someone from the group of death. So I think it's it's, it's good to have in your back pocket, I'd say, but the back four seems to be working fairly well now. Um, But um, what Southgate said after the game on Sunday about Trippier playing to the left of Mings and bringing that experience that's key really as to why he's going to play that back four because we've talked about the weakness at centre-back and Southgate's obviously almost acknowledged that himself so if he's going to play the back four he wants to have that experience either side when he feels comfortable and Maguire is fit he won't need to worry about that he can play the back three and have the wing backs and that's probably the way he's going to want to play in the latter stages because that will push England further up the pitch. It will get them into more attacking positions. And Sunday, Southgate perhaps played it a little bit safe. And I know you guys have really sort of gone through the game a lot, so we're not necessarily talking about Sunday's fixture that much. But I think going forward, fans will want to see Southgate not necessarily take more risks, but create more chances and definitely score more goals and I think that was probably the one thing that was really lacking on Sunday is starting a big tournament off with a bang a really big convincing win which England never really do so I think that's that's really what the fans wanted but it was it was a win regardless um and Sterling scoring was was obviously just a kind of really magical moment but I think that that back three will come but it'll be in the later stages and it'll be when Maguire is fit. Jack, I'm going to be horribly hypothetical here. Let's pretend that we all live in an ideal world and England dispatch Scotland on Friday. They get the six points and at that point they'll be through knowing that they're going to be in the last 16. If that is the case, in the last game of the group, could you see an experimentation with three at the back there? That's a good question. I've always thought that England played 3-4-3 against stronger opposition. So, for example, if we were to play France or Portugal or Germany in that last 16 game, I think Southgate would probably go for the extra protection um, of the extra centre-back to deal with Mbappe, for example. Um, but if, they, if England are going to do it for the last 16 game, and I do understand, I do take the argument that they should at least try it out again in that Czech Republic game, assuming they beat Scotland, just so they're not doing it completely cold. That said, if they were to do it for that Czech Republic game, then maybe they'd feel like it might minimise their chance of winning. I don't know. There's just a lot of there's a lot of hypotheticals and a lot of questions that Southgate would have to answer about what exactly he wants his approach to be for that third group game, depending on the situation that England are in and depending on the kind of route towards the final that he might want in the knockout rounds. 
Yeah, I mean, on, on a similar kind of line, Jason S wants to know, again, if we're living in that ideal world where England have got six points going into the weekend, do you think he'll use that game, David, as a chance to assess Maguire and Henderson? Or do you think it prob- might be too early for either? Probably not Henderson, because we know he probably can play, but Maguire, hmm. Yeah, well, t- I mean, if we've obviously we don't know the the the, the position they're in at the moment regarding fi- uh, fitness-wise. But yes, you can do that, because, I mean... If, I don't think uh, Tyron Mings uh, I did all right the other day. You know, he wasn't really tested that much. Maybe he's further down the line. You know, when he's he's putting a little bit more pressure as he has been in the you know even in the friendlies leading up. Okay, the friendlies game there's nothing on it, but for him himself there was a lot of pressure on it because he needs to do well. He wants to put himself into the team, and yet so that pressure just maybe just got to him a little bit. And you know, we all saw the, uh, the sort of clash in the box that was was very needless. But also, you look at the uh, the tactics that Croatia uh, set up in the in the game the other day. They let him have the ball. Now that that's what the teams will do. He's obviously you know he's the one who you would just leave on the ball. Just don't you know not even pressure him really, or you could just leave him free when the ball's travelling to him. Then you impress him and put him under pressure and. So if if you think that's going to be a tactic that the opposition is going to use, then maybe you want somebody like Maguire back in, somebody who's better on the ball, and yeah, even Ben White. Jack, I mean, you're in in and around things. You, you're you're speaking to Gareth Southgate. You're in the press conferences. Is there any update on on Maguire and Henderson? What's the latest with them too? Yeah, well, Maguire wasn't even on the bench for the game on Sunday, so. I get the impression that Henderson is clearly closer than Maguire. Henderson had some involvement in the uh, in the Romania friendly when he missed the penalty. Uh, so I think we'll probably see Henderson before Maguire. I think Henderson really makes sense to kind of slow the game down. Substitution in the second half, perhaps, if England are ahead and they just want a bit more experience on the field. Maguire's clearly not close, although while England would want him back in the team, I think they'll certainly be encouraged by how good Mings and Stones were together at centre-back for the Croatia game. So maybe he's healthy at field. He doesn't quite have to rush back Maguire. Uh, that said, the further in we get into the tournament, the harder it is to bring back a player who hasn't played for months. So uh, I don't think it's I don't think it's automatic that Maguire and Henderson will get in the team as soon as they're fit. Even though you know, in an ideal world, it would be nice to be able to play them. Yeah, because Flo already. Calvin Phillips has had a great game. Declan Rice is one of the first names on the team. So you know, even if Henderson's fully fit and firing. You don't want to disrupt things, I would say. Yeah, I, I wouldn't really. I mean, Southgate's got, like we've talked about, a really, really good squad to choose from. And the fact that Chilwell and, and Sancho didn't even make the final squad on Sunday and you know, didn't even make the bench on Sunday was really surprising. And that just shows the depth that England have got. The fact that Trippier, who's a right back, was playing it at left back on Sunday. And I imagine Chilwell's probably a bit gutted about that. And I thought he would just drop straight in into that left left back position but hey ho you know it's it's a really really strong side and it's all about confidence in these tournaments and I think I would expect to see a similar sort of team against Scotland on Friday but perhaps more attacking um I really would really would like to see Sancho play and Grealish as well actually so I hope they might come into the side somehow but 
yeah, like you said, you might not want to mess with it because the teams that can stay together and, and build confidence and build a rhythm to the tournament, they're the ones that are going to go really far and just dropping in players like Maguire and Henderson who obviously have bags of experience and especially Maguire has, has, has had a good season. Is it worth it? I don't know. I mean, yeah, like I said, I think if they go back three, Maguire's, it, Maguire's got to be fit to, if they do that. Dan, I, I, I just think, you know, we've talked about... In, uh, would they make wholesale changes or bring players back for the, uh, give them fitness for the um, in, in the check game? I think, if anything, more wholesale changes will be made for the Scotland game. I think the the, the pressure's off. Yeah, I think the pressure's off now. You know, you got three points in the, on the board. This is the game. I'm not saying obviously it's not going to be an easy game. You know, we know what uh, the England Scotland games are like. But also, it's it, this is the game where there's a bit of wriggle room, you know. If, if you know, even if they get a draw, it's not the worst result, and then at least they know what they've got to do in the um, uh, in the check game. And I think they can play around a little bit with this one. I think that's probably where the you know where the thinking comes in with it, like the trippy inclusion and, um, and and the wide players that he picked uh, forward because I think those will change. You know, those are the play, those are the um, uh, those are the positions where it takes up you know a lot of energy. Wanting runs in behind all the time, and also it's about you know if you think of it like you know maybe it's Tim Henman at it's Wimbledon where you, the first few rounds he's going five sets you know I think they'll and he sort of tires out towards the end of the tournament. Well, we we don't want this you know if we're in a good position we're feeling confident then we we can you know after win this first game we can sort of take smaller steps and, and not tire these players out too much and give them a break in between rather than having two games in a row. Give them a break in between, sort of spread it out a little bit. So then when you do go to the knockout stages, then you've got fresher players rather than putting all the eggs in one basket. As Flo says as well, just so much talent in attack to choose from. You know, a bit of rotation wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing at all. It's an open question to, to the panel. Maybe something I should know the answer to, but I don't. What's the advantage of having two goalkeepers on the bench and leaving a Sancho and a Chilwell? Do you have to have two goalkeepers on the bench? Anyone know? No? I think you do. I think it's the UEFA rule. Is it a rule? You it? have to. I just, it just. I think it is it's the strange. Rule. Yeah. It's really, really strange. You've got the twenty-six man squad, but you have to have two goalkeepers on the bench. Because it was, you know, if you had, if you have a normal twenty-three man squad, yeah, with three yeah, keepers, yeah. You would then have the those two, two keepers, keepers would go. So they've only added the three extra additional out player, oh. outfield players because of COVID, but they wouldn't want, um, you know. They want to stick with the with the tradition of having the, the two keepers on the bench. And this might seem like a bit of a setup, but there is actually an article on this exact subject from the Athletics Dan Sheldon. Long story short, there is a UEFA rule which requires two goalkeepers on the bench. But for a full breakdown of how it works, just check out that Dan Sheldon piece on the site. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruits and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruits and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. Right, this next question is going to look like I'm perusing the athletic pretending to be called Ned R, but I'm not doing that. The question is just Grealish, 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 Grealish. There's a couple of them with capital Gs, a a few of them with not. I'm not sure what the relevance is on that, but yeah. Who wants to tie that one on? I will. Um, Look, clearly Jack Grealish is incredibly popular with a huge sway in the public, and there's lots and lots of people who would be desperate for him to to be in the England team. He was getting roared when he, even when he was warming up at Wembley on Sunday. And uh, before the game, when I suggested on Twitter that Sterling would start instead of Grealish in that left, on that left-hand side, I had millions of people on Twitter like screaming at me that, in fact, Grealish should have been starting ahead of Sterling. But Southgate's very loyal to Sterling. Sterling has played almost every England game when fit over the last few years. And I thought Sterling completely justified his selection with you know, even before the goal, I thought he was our most dangerous attacking player with those runs in behind, the kind of thing that Sterling does that Grealish doesn't really do. Um, so, no, I, I think there's no chance of Sterling being dropped anytime soon. Maybe I could see the argument for Grealish coming in ahead of Foden. I thought Foden worked incredibly hard on Sunday. I thought he tired clearly in the second half. I also think that Grealish is kind of a better... It's more of a straight swap putting Grealish in for Foden than it is putting Grealish in for Sterling. Um, and maybe Grealish would be useful against Scotland because in his capacity to win free kicks, we can you know, maybe get into some good attacking positions that way. Um, so I wouldn't mind having Grealish in the team. And I, I, you know, I'm a huge fan of Grealish. I love watching him play. I think he's a great guy. But I have to say, some of the kind of pro-Grealish clamour from not just Villa fans, but also people on the internet is, uh, you know, it, it's a lot. And I, I respect the fact that Southgate's managed to shut it out and just stick with his with the team that he knows is the best. Yeah, I read your piece explaining that all Southgate selections were vindicated, Jack, and I've got to say, even as a Villa man, I did agree with it. Although I do think, Flo, if, if maybe we hadn't scored when we did, he may have been on the cusp of coming on, but I think just the way the game went, it wasn't the right game for him in the end, but Scotland game, I absolutely think playing playing that in a kind of a derby match, I think that suits him down to the ground. Yeah, I have to agree. I mean, I talked about it before on this podcast, how I think he's the perfect character for that sort of game because Scotland were a bit disappointing and frustrating yesterday. Their fans were certainly absolutely gutted and they're really up for it. There'll be a good bunch of them at Wembley as well. I think the atmosphere will be really, really good and he will relish in that environment, relish the occasion and I think he'll rise to it and I think he'll get in the faces of the Scotland players because I'm sure they're going to try and wind him up as well and and probably try and... um, 
try and irritate the situation, I think. And, and I think Gre- Grealish is the perfect man for that. So I really hope he plays on Friday. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same. I, honestly, having watched him play in, in local derby games before, I would say this game is absolutely built for him, David. Yeah, it is. And it's, it's, from a tactical perspective, it is as well. Because you look at um, you look at the Croatian game and um, you ought to see where the space was, where the, where the space was, where we use the best, where we could hurt teams. It's going to be in behind, of course. You know, it was going to be Sterling and, and Ford Nuke could provide that. With this game, it's going to be a little bit different. Although that, you know... And we'll talk about later about Scotland's where Scotland's approach that you know they, they have been a little bit more aggressive. They knew that to win, you know, try and win this this first game. It was important for them to try and first win this first game. So they weren't they were quite attacking. Maybe that'll change against England. Maybe they'll, they'll put the onus on England to uh, to try and break them down and be a little deeper. And um, yeah, and and so if they're going to be deep, then the space is going to be in front of them in their midfield. What do you need then? You need somebody who's going to take players on it and sort of break lines with the ball rather than trying to go in behind. So it, Jack's perfect for that, and I, th- I think that tactically Southgate has been very good so far. I think he's got things all correct. You know, we looked. You know, the last time Blake Croatia in the World Cup, the game was lost in that midfield. Okay, it's it's Modric, Rakitic, Brozovic, you know, Kovacic. You've got those players in there. He made the right approach going the three in midfield and and the people that he did in behind uh, in in the forward line to use the space in behind. So I think um yeah I think you look at it tactically this time and say Gurley should be the man to un- unlock the defence. Gotta say I, I really really loved Gareth Southgate's game plan on Sunday. I thought it was so astute. I thought what he did was so clever, and I'm hoping he can come up with a plan for the Scotland game as well. Let's touch on Scotland then because we all will have watched the game on Monday. Scotland back in a major tournament, Jack, for the first time since 1998. By the looks of some of the Scotland fans' faces, it was tough being back, wasn't it, Jack? Yeah, I really felt for them because it was clearly, even on on TV, such an amazing occasion. The fans were so loud. Uh, The players looked really up for it. And I didn't think they played that badly. They just got got picked off. And obviously, you can see that free goal... um, that Schick scored from the halfway line, which was obviously, you know... an unbelievably good piece of, of skill from him to score, and you know, on another day, Scotland probably would have won. You know, they hit the bar just before them. Uh, so I did, uh, yeah, I did, I did feel for them a lot, and um, I wouldn't just because they lost their opening against Czech Republic. I certainly wouldn't be complacent about the game at Wembley on Friday. Yeah, I mean, I've got to say, I thought the only difference between the two teams was that Czech Republic had a marksman. I, I would say that was probably the, the difference between the teams. One of the best goals you'll ever see in the Euros. And, and, and David, I think and there is a piece at the moment about the best Euro goals that you're going to talk about. But also you can come at it from the perspective of you've been lobbed from a long way out, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, this was when I was in there, when I was in Silkeborg in Denmark playing against FC Michelin. And I think we were 3-0 down or something. It was a, it was a cup game. We made a lot of changes, and um, I, I, I quite often teams used to try and try and lob me from a lot of players used to try and lob me from the halfway line, try and shoot from the halfway line. Obviously, just because I used to play high up, I always played high up outside my box, um, and so, but I was always, you know, you, you're always aware of that. That's what's going to happen. You know, if you put yourself in that position, you've got to be prepared to to backpedal and 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 get back, defend your goal. So it's like I said, it. If you play that way, then it's a risk. It's a high risk strategy. Now, most of the time, it does pay off if you, you know, if your defense is playing a high line. Goalkeeping now, it's 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 not safety first. Uh, it's you know, it's more proactive than it than it ever has been. 
And I think, you know, looking at it in general, you know, if a goalkeeper's playing high and the defence is playing so, so aggressively in the, other, uh, in the opposition's half, then you have to be prepared to uh, to stop the ball come, you know, to stop the ball getting near your goal before it becomes a real danger. You can sweep up in the back and be high up in your in your own half. Now, in in this position, and in this situation with uh, with Scotland, I have to say a couple of things first. One, it's an incredibly quick transition. You know, it it goes so quickly from sort of being in possession to out of possession to being a threat that it's you know. It's a little bit freakish in that respect. And also, you know, Schick's finish. What an incredible finish. You know, even if you just put a ball down for, a, you know, for any of those players and you put a, uh, you put a goalkeeper in goal and you try and see, try and hit them. A lot of time goalkeepers might get back or, you know, you know, we've all seen the crossbar challenge on soccer, yeah, and things like that, you know. This is under pressure, in a real pressurised situation. He's got to try and, you know, win the game for his country. And it's an excellent execution. But there's, like, there's a few things that, that goes with it as well. He uh, Marshall's in that position because of the way that they're set up. So his defence is high and aggressive on the, uh, on the players that, that are closest to the Scotland goal. So he has to be high. They're in possession of the ball. Jack Henry's in possession of the ball. There's no danger at all. Now, in that in that situation, Jack Henry Henry isn't being he's not being taught to shoot. It won't be a strategy to shoot from that position. Certainly, when he's in a when there's somebody closing him down, getting ready to block it. So everything's set up for him to be passing the ball wide to work a better uh, a better situation, a better opportunity. Now, because he turns the ball over so quickly, everything changes. So, uh, you know, in a split second, and that sort of so the whole uh, scenario is flipped on its head. And David Marshall was high quite often in that game, especially early on. I think Schick said he'd noticed that in the game. So, if they could get a quick turnover, he was going to do it. But we were always looking to apportion blame to people. Or oh, was it Jack Henry? Was it David Marshall? Well, no, it was actually Steve Clark because of it. You know, if you want to blame anybody. You've got to you've got to say it's him for the tactic he's using in that situation. Now, I wouldn't blame Steve Clark because I think that his tactics were very aggressive and very assertive, and that's what I want from a manager rather than being defensive and sort of sitting back. Oh, we we're just happy to be here. We want to try and nick a goal. No, he was trying to he was trying to win that game. So I think it's um yeah there should be less finger pointing and more more appreciation of uh, of the finish as well from Schick. Yeah, it's an absolutely outrageous finish. No right to score. Even the technique of the way he's done it, Flo, he's, there's, there's no right for him to be able to pull that off. Yeah, I don't have much more to add than <laughs> just a really good goal. <laughs> yeah, d- yeah. Dave, he's done a good job of explaining it, hasn't he, to, to be fair. But on, on a start, I, mean, I, I think Scotland, though, Jack, well, I'll stay with you, actually, Flo. I think Scotland actually would take a lot away from that game and have a lot to build on. Yeah, they had a, they had some good chances. I think the Czech Republic goalie had a, had a really good game, um, and Lyndon Dykes had that brilliant chance. And he had a really good end of season for QPR. Um, he struggled, I think, when he when he first arrived to the championship. But Charlie Austin kind of brought him under his wing and really transformed him in the second half of the season. And he's just been really, really good. But I think he plays better when he's got someone to link up with. And I think he was a little bit isolated yesterday because he'd been so effective for QPR in the second half of the season because he was really good at bringing others into the game. He got a couple of assists as well. He wasn't just being this target man. And that's how QPR were trying to play at the 
first half of the season and that's how Scotland play a lot with him is he he is sort of this target man and he's waiting for little heads on or little kind of chips into the box or whatever he can he can kind of pick up scraps from but I think it would be more effective if he can play off or play in other people because he's got more skills to his game but it was unfortunate that the best chance of the game fell to him and he didn't finish it. But I think he'll get more chances. But obviously when you measure up the fact that they've got Lyndon Dykes as their kind of main outlet up front compared to what other teams in their group have got, yes, it's going to be a struggle for Scotland. I thought Che Adams looked lively when he came on. Yeah, and he's, made an impact. He's always going to be like that. He's very energetic. He's very physical. He's a big guy. Um, and he's a good finisher. And, and maybe if that had fallen to Adams instead of Dykes, it would have been a different story. But I think, yeah, Scotland made it hard for themselves. Um, but the fans were great. I think they'll be great on Friday. And they still have a chance of getting out of this group. You know, third third place teams can get through. So I, I don't think it's over yet, but it's obviously a bit disappointing because they waited so long and to open their tournament with this game on paper was a pretty decent situation. And now they've got a lot to work for because they've got to they've got to get something against England. Whereas if they'd started off with three points yesterday, it just would have made life so much easier. And just when you thought it was going to be a nice quiet day on the podcast, we've had fairly significant breaking news coming through to us. Reports are coming in that Dean Henderson has been ruled out for the rest of the tournament with a hip injury. So that means that he's going to be replaced in the squad jack by Aaron Ramsdale. I mean, obviously, most England fans are going to hope that Jordan Pickford, nothing happens to him and he would have played every minute of the tournament anyway. Would you consider this much of a blur? Um... It's it's not a blow as long as Pickford stays fit. I mean, clearly Pickford is very solid as England's first choice keeper. Gareth, I know some people have their doubts about him, but Gareth Southgate has always had a huge amount of faith in Pickford over the years. And I understand why, because Pickford's always performed very well for England and he's much better with his feet than I think any of, any of his other contemporaries as English goalkeepers. That said... A few months ago, you would have had Nick Pope as number two, probably Dean Henderson as number three. Both very good keepers. Pope's played a fair few England games over the years. Southgate's always been keen to give him opportunities and would be a very solid number two. But Pope's obviously missing because of that knee injury he had to have at the end of the season. And now with Henderson pulling out as well, that means that England's second and third keepers are Johnson and Ramsdale, who before the tournament would have been England's fourth and fifth choice keepers. So... If something happens to Pickford, and we have to hope that it doesn't, Southgate would be drawing on a keeper with far less experience than Nick Pope or Dean Henderson. So I hope it won't be an issue, but let's wait and see. Yeah, it feels now like there's a a big gap between the number one in terms of both top-level experience and international experience now, and Pickford's obviously got that tournament experience as, as well. It would be a massive ask for either of them to have to step into his gloves. It would be, yeah, and that's why over the over the last few years, Southgate's been so keen always to give Nick Pope a few games here or there, just to make sure that if Pickford were to get injured during the course of a tournament, Southgate wouldn't be bringing in a guy who's got no caps, no tournament experience. Now, obviously, the problem with Pope now being injured and these new guys coming in is that if something happens to Pickford, Southgate would be drawing on someone with no, with no international experience at all. And look... Johnson and Ramsdale are pretty good keepers. You know, Johnson's done pretty well at West Brom. 
Uh, Ramsdale was player of the season at Sheffield United this year. Uh, even though they've obviously had a difficult season, they were relegated, uh, having previously been at Bournemouth. So, you know, they're pretty good keepers, but they just don't have that international... They don't have the international experience that Nick Pope does, never mind the international experience that Jordan Pickford does. And that's why I think Southgate will be, you know, desperately hoping, I think, that, that Pickford stays fit over the, the rest of the Euros. Yeah, on Sam Johnston, obviously Dean Henderson didn't play in the warm-up games because of the, the Europa League commitments of Manchester United. Probably a good job now that Johnston got that first cap under his belt against Romania. He did well as well. Yeah, he did do well. And at least it means that if... At least he, at least he won't be making his England debut if he were to come in. I thought Johnston looked pretty good against Romania. He kind of looked solid and vocal and good on crosses and made a few saves. So I don't... He's clearly a pretty good keeper. It's just that you know we all know that international tournament football is a very it's a kind of unique challenge really, and it puts a huge amount of pressure on you, especially mentally. Uh, and in the past, England goalkeepers have you know England some pretty good England goalkeepers have struggled a little bit with a step into tournament football. You know we can remember Rob Green's famous mistake against the USA at the start of the 2010 World Cup is an example of you know a goalkeeper who maybe struggled a little bit with with that adjustment playing in a tournament and while Jordan Pickford has his critics one thing we know about Pickford is he doesn't struggle with pressure like he's always been very very good for England in big games you know everybody remembers his famous save from back Carlos Backer's penalty against Colombia and Moscow in the last season of the World Cup in 2018 his brilliant run of saves against Sweden in the quarterfinal in Samara uh, a few days later so Pickford has clearly got that big game mentality which means he doesn't make mistakes under pressure and well who who knows how the other goalkeepers would fare if they were thrown into a massive game for England at this tournament? I can't, you know, let, I don't know whether we'll have to find out or not. Fingers crossed, we don't. I mean, Dean Henderson, it's a shame for him as well, isn't it? Because although he probably wouldn't have played, he's missing out on that experience of being being part of the England team during a tournament, a tournament where most games are played at home as well. It's sad for him. Yeah, it's really sad for Henderson, just as it is for Pope. You know, Henderson clearly is the kind of next big thing of English goalkeeping. He managed to displace David De Gea from the Manchester United side for a lot of big games over the second half of this season. I think at the start of the season there were questions about just how involved was Henderson going to be? Was he going to play enough for Man United to, to force his way into the England setup? He did do that. He did play a lot of Premier League games from about January or February on this season. Got himself back into Southgate's plans. We would have been going in into this squad probably as the number three behind Pope and then when Pope got injured Henderson was clearly the number two and it was possible to see a situation in which Henderson could either be thrown into the games and he would have done well or you know he'd be growing in experience and maybe he would be able to displace Pickford next tournament tournament after that who knows so it is a real shame for Henderson that he's not going to be part of that group because he's clearly a uh, you know a popular member of the group and a very good goalkeeper Jack, we'll turn now to what's been going on on The Athletic. What articles have you been liking? Ollie Kaye's piece on England, I thought, really captured the moods and how and how positive everybody felt after that first England game. You know, he doesn't make any predictions or say anything bold about how England are going to do or that football is coming home or anything like that. He just makes the point that we have to enjoy it. You know, it's very rare for... it's This is the first time England have ever won their first game at a European Championship. It's also, I think, the first time England have beaten a proper proper international opposition over 90 minutes in a tournament game. 
probably since Argentina in 2002. I mean, the Croatia team that we beat in 2004 wasn't very good. Um, and there's not really many other candidates. You know, England don't often win these tournament games against, against good teams. And if they, uh, So in that sense, I do think it's something we should just savour and enjoy because, you know, who knows what's going to happen in the next few weeks. But England have already done something that they can be proud of at this tournament. And that, you know, it's not always that we can say that. Flo? Yeah, I think there's there's loads of great stuff at the moment. I, I really enjoyed um, Brian Conway and Kiva O'Neill's piece about Sterling's roots near Wembley. Also Sterling, someone who started out at um, QPR's academy before going on to Liverpool. So definitely enjoy something that looks at some of his roots there. I also really enjoyed the piece about Kiefer Moore, uh, about playing in the conference um, as well and his journey to play to for where he is now for Cardiff and I think he is such a threat in the air and exactly what Wales needed and then that equaliser at the weekend was massive so that one's by Laurie Whitwell and Stuart James I really enjoyed that and then that that piece we chatted about earlier Mark Carey's piece about England pressing and um, Bielsa's leads I thought was a really good one as well. David, we've already spoken about the outrageous goal from Schick. That goal is going to be remembered as one of the best Euro goals of all time. You, you've enjoyed the piece looking back at some other goals, haven't you? Yeah, there's a, there's a great piece where just the athletic writers just writing up on their uh, most memorable goals from the Euro. So, and there's some classics in there as well. Ones that everyone will know the you know the one that we ones that we see all the time, but also a few that even I've forgotten about. And two of the goals here are from 1988 Euros. Both of them, I've got, you know, this is the goalkeeper kind of coming out of me. I've got a lot of sympathy for Renat Desayev, a Russian goalkeeper, because there's two goals. Well, obviously, what the famous one from Marco Van Basten, the volley in the, in, the, in the final, but also an, another incredible volley from Ronnie Whelan that, uh, that goes past him. So it's one of the world's best goalkeepers and just shows sometimes not even the best can do anything about some goals. Yeah, I'm going to shout out Jack's piece as well from the from the weekend after the, after the England game. So if you're still questioning Southgate's selection, go and look at Jack's piece on the vindication of Gareth Southgate's team selection because it really is a great read. And personally, I think it's very difficult to disagree with what Jack said. And don't forget as well, the absolute must-read by Dan Sheldon, the piece on UEFA article 43.01, whereby teams must have two goalkeepers on the bench because that is, that is the best thing knocking about on the Athletic at the moment. Thank you very much to everyone that sent questions and we went through as many as we could. It's always great to get subscribers' thoughts and try and answer the questions that they have. Thanks to the guys on the panel today for joining me as well. It's been a pleasure to speak to you all and I'm sure I'll see you all again on this show soon. Athletic.